Judges chapter 17 and 18. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained the one of, ordained one of his son to become his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be for me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Don was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Don sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And they said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtal, their brothers said to them, What do you report? 
And they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol and went up and encamped at Kirith Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Manahidan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kirith Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout the out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that these houses there sorry, do you know that in these houses there there are an ephod household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone out to scout out the land went up, entered, and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priests said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be be the priest of a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Don. And they shouted to the people of Don, who turned round and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest, and you go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Don said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Don went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Don took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests at a tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Lord, we um, thank you for 
the scriptures. Thank you that you're a speaking God. We ask for your help now as you look at them, that we would see and understand and feel and respond to what you have to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In 2009, on Channel 4, they ran what ended up being quite a controversial program about groups of children aged between 8 and 12 who were left alone for a fortnight with no adult supervision. The idea is not exactly original, but it did make for some quite interesting viewing. At first, they thought it was fab, because no more parents, no more rules, you could do what you like. You can eat what you want and do what you want, and you can go to bed whenever you want. Hooray. But pretty soon, things began to go wrong as the children were mean to each other. They couldn't agree. All they ate was sweets and fizzy drinks, which makes you feel pretty rotten and a bit after a while. And there was even some fist fighting. And um, we can imagine that, can't you? With no one in charge, things got worse and worse. With no one in charge, things got worse and worse. And really, in many ways, that is the message of the book of Judges. With no one in charge, things got worse and worse. We've seen that the book is written in three parts, and all the parts make that point. At the beginning of the book, Israel uh, going really well. They've entered the land under Joshua. They're um, driving out the evil Canaanites. They're obeying God. It's great. But then Joshua, the leader, he dies, and quickly things begin to unravel. The conquest grinds to a halt. Instead of driving out the evil Canaanites, the people begin to intermingle with them, begin to act like them, worship their gods. With no one in charge, things get worse and worse. And then in the middle section, the main section of the book, it's the same point. It goes in cycles as Israel um, turns away from the Lord. He hands them over to the power of a foreign enemy who oppressed them. They cry out, and it's, it's a leader who saves the day and beats the enemy, and leads the people back to God. It's the leader that saves the day, and things are better for a while, until the leader dies, and the whole thing starts again. Saying that they need a leader, or else things get worse and worse. And now, this evening, and next week, as we finish off, we're into the final section, which is frankly, really nasty. It's really nasty. I think I think this might be the nastiest bit in the whole Bible. Um... This is the writer's portrait of Israel gone completely feral. There is robbery and rape and civil war. These are nasty chapters. And the writer is really clear about why they're so nasty. You may have noticed the repetition as Sabine read, and it it comes again at the start of chapter 19, if you look at that, and then the very last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own own eyes. So as this picture of feral Israel is given, that's the refrain that comes through it, because that's the reason there was no one in charge, and things got worse and worse. Now, this is clearly a message for Israel in their history. Um, Judges, in many ways, is paving the way for monarchy and David. If you read on through Ruth and then 1 Samuel, that's what's next. Israel needs a king. Israel gets a king. But this is also important for us, because a big part of the Bible's message to all people, to us now, is that we are, like them, a lawless bunch. We naturally reject God's authority over us because we want to run life our own way. 
I'll call it the um, DIY philosophy. I'll make the rules. I'll do it my way. That's what we're like, the DIY philosophy. And the book of Judges is written to say to us, with no one in charge, when you follow the DIY philosophy, when you do what is right in your own eyes, things get worse and worse. This approach to life, the DIY philosophy, is wrong. It's mistreating God. It's wrong. And the results are very ugly. We need a king. And so the Bible's message, the Bible's invitation to us is to come back under the loving rule of God through his king, Jesus Christ. Um, Some of you may have seen this picture before. It's meant to represent the choice that we all face, every one of us. Either we can try to keep on wearing the crown on our own heads, I'll go my way through life, my decisions, I'll make the rules, or we can submit our lives and live as a subject of Jesus. That's the choice that we all face. And the book of Judges is written to say, Israel needed a king, we need a king, you need a king, make the right choice. Live your life under the rule of King Jesus. Stop, stop it with the DIY. That's what this book is saying to us. And the epilogue, it does that in a very simple way. There are two parts to it. Um, what we have this evening, it shows us DIY religion, and it says, it's no good. You need to get a king. And then the final three chapters next week shows us DIY morality, and the message is, it's no good. You need a king. But the thing is, do, I mean, uh, um, do we really need a king? Just as we plunge into this for the next couple of weeks, do we really need a king? It'd be easy for us to hear this message and think, well, I'm just not sure I do need a king. I'm not sure I need someone else in charge of my life. That doesn't sound that nice. But it doesn't sound like something I need. I don't make that big a mess of my life. I know that there are people who are, but I, I don't make that big a mess of my life. Life with me in charge is frankly not that bad. And that example from the beginning was instructive because we're not children. I'm not a child. I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. I can make my own way. So do I really need a king? Some of us might react like that when we hear about this choice. Some of us, though, will have a different problem. For some of us, if we're already a convinced Christian, the issue is that we had a king. Maybe it was years ago that you asked the Lord Jesus, made him the Lord of your life. And so what does Judges say to you? It seems to be advertising or selling something that you've already bought. So what's the relevance of this? Well, it's exactly these kinds of questions that these final chapters of Judges are written to address. Do we really need a king? Do I really need a king? Yes, you do. Because this is what it looks like when there's no one in charge. At the end of the day, this is where you get to. You need a king. But I already have a king. I'm already one of God's people. So were they. We find out, if you just look at the end of the passage, the end of chapter 18, we find out that one of the guys who's involved in all the shenanigans here is Moses' grandson, or great-grandson, I think, actually. Verse 30. No, Moses' grandson. You would think if Moses was your grandpa, you could hold it together. But no. 
These are God's people, and yet this is how they behave. So these chapters are for us. They're written for us, written to persuade us, whoever we are, that we need the king God offers us, written to persuade us that the DIY philosophy does not work and that we must, if we say we're Christians, we must truly live under his rule, not just in theory as the people of God, but really in practice in our lives. So let's have a look. Um, First of all, what we have in this section is a portrait of DIY religion. Let's run through the story. It's written in five parts. First, we meet a guy called Micah, who, it turns out, has robbed his mum. She's missing 1,100 pieces of silver, which in their terms is lots. And eventually, he owns up. She's really pleased, and she's so happy to have the money back, she consecrates it over um, um, for God's use although she does keep 900 of it for herself. But still, that leaves a couple of hundred to give to Micah to build some images of God and an idol and a shrine and an ephod, which is a sort of a priestly um, robe. And then he appoints one of his sons as a priest over this little shrine in their house. Now, that's scene one. And doesn't it maybe seem a bit promising? It is a family that is taking religion seriously. This is a family who want God to have a bigger part of their life at home. Although, didn't God say something about some of the things that Mike has done? Think about the Ten Commandments. Number two, don't make any images of God. Number five, respect your parents, which probably includes behavior up to and including robbing them of their life savings. Number eight, don't steal. And overall, really the biggest problem here, the Lord had explained very clearly how he was to be approached and worshipped. In his word, in the law, he had laid down very clear instructions about there being one tabernacle and one official priesthood. And it's not a franchise operation. There was one place where the Israelites could meet with God. We read at the end of chapter 18 that in these days it was at Shiloh, which is not very far away from where Micah's house is. So this whole private shrine business is utterly forbidden by God's law. And for the original Jewish readers, you really don't have to be a Bible expert to know that this runs completely against what God has said in the law. But that leads into the second part of the story, because maybe, maybe, let's be fair to him, maybe Micah was aware that his DIY shrine wasn't quite official, and so he upgrades. A young Levite is passing by, a young guy from Benjamin, um, from the uh, town of Bethlehem, and Micah offers him a job. That's the long and short of it. The Levites were the tribe in Israel that were set apart by God as the priests. And so you're thinking, great, he's, he's got himself a proper priest, a Levite. And if you look at verse 13 of chapter 17, you can see what, what Micah's, he, Micah's thinking, great, this time it's official. Verse 13, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. But again, what would the Lord make of all this? It's true that all priests are Levites, but it's not true that all Levites were able to be priests. Only certain families within that tribe, and we're told at the end of the section that he's from Moses' line, which is not the priests, because Aaron's line, his brother, they were the priests. 
And so this guy might look a bit more the part, but really he's just as illegal as Micah's own son had been. And Micah could have easily found that out if he had bothered to check or read God's law, because it's really clear about all of this. And also the motives in the passage. All the Levite wants is a steady job, decent pay. And all Micah wants is to get God on side so that he'll look after him and bless him. This is not a picture of religious piety. So the story moves on again. Micah builds a shrine. He upgrades it with a proper Levite. And now some um, spies from the tribe of Dan inquire at the shrine. They... um, this tribe was looking for more land, and so they sent out some spies to find a place where they could occupy. And on their way, they're passing by Micah's house. They recognize the Levite. It seems that they have met him before, and he tells them about the shrine, the ephod. And they think, brilliant, let's take this opportunity to inquire of God and ask him kind of how our mission is going to go. Let's see if it's a thumbs up from God for this land grab. And the reply comes back in verse 6. Have a look at that. Seems okay. So off they go. And they find a Sidonian city called um, Laish, which in their words is quiet and unsuspecting, an ideal target. And so they head back to rally the rest of their tribe. Now again, at the surface level, a lot of this seems okay. I mean, isn't it good to seek the Lord's blessing and guidance in our decision, like these guys do? And weren't the Israelites supposed to be attacking the Canaanite residents of the land and occupying it? But again, when you look at the story in proper detail, you see that it's 100% DIY. It's very ironic how this is written. Because the land that this tribe of Dan had been given isn't here. It's in another part of the country. They are doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not listening to God and what he had said, where he had sent them. And if they had known the law, if they had bothered to check, they would have steered well clear of Micah's dodgy shrine. If they did want to find out what God thought, they could have gone to the official priests, the proper tabernacle down the road in Shiloh. And even with the answer that they do receive, you get the definite sense that they're not really looking for an answer from God. They just want a quick thumbs up. They don't want to think about what he's saying. They're not asking what he thinks. Not really. They just want... So look at what the, what the priest says, verse 6. And the priest said, um, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Now if you take that in a very perfunctory way, and oh, great, thanks. And then they're on their way. But think about it. Look at the words. Go in peace as you plan your sneaky little war crime. Your journey is under the eye of the Lord. Oh yes, he sees what you're doing. They listen, but they're not really listening. And actually the whole mission is misconceived. Like I said, this bit of land that they attack is not part of the land that God had given them. And also these people, the um, Sidonians, are not among the tribes of the land that God had told his people to drive out in judgment or to kill. These are innocent, unsuspecting bystanders, but nonetheless, they are wiped out. This is a DIY mission from start to finish. 
the tribe of Dan is doing what is right in their own eyes. But before the slaughter happens, um, as the, the kind of main force of the tribe are going up on the attack, they pass by Micah's house, and the spies are there again, and they say, oh, that's the house where there's a priest and a shrine and an ephod and an image. And wouldn't it be great if we could have that? We could take it with us, and then surely the Lord would bless us. Let's steal it. And so that's what they do. Armed men go in, they steal the shrine. They persuade the priest with an offer of more money, more prestige. You can see that in verse 19. They outbid Micah. They say, don't just be a household chaplain for one guy. We'll make you the archbishop of a whole tribe. Micah protests, but they're too strong for him. Verses 21 to 26 are a classic show of might is right. Micah rallies his friends. They go after them and say, uh, the, um, um, the army guys say, what's your problem? And Micah says, you've stolen my priest and my shrine. And the army guys go, keep your voice down. Some of the lads, they've got a bit of a quick temper on them. Know what I mean? And there's nothing Micah can do. He sees that they're too strong for him. And so he has to go home. This is a portrait from start to finish, the five parts of the story of DIY religion. And whether it's Micah or the Levites, uh, um, Levite or the tribe of Dan, all of these people are making it up for themselves. They are doing what is right in their own eyes without any regard to what God might think or what God might have said. Instead, they put words in his mouth and they approach him in any way that they please. Now, there's so many problems with this, and that's what we're going to think about in a minute. But just as we, as we see the story, see the whole story, there's a, there's a big thing, a big obvious thing that's very ironic that we mustn't miss. It's the big thing. Even lawless people who do what is right in their own eyes and ignore God's word are very religious and keen to have God on their side. We mustn't miss that. When I go my way through life and ignore God, reject his rule, that does not mean I never talk about God. It doesn't mean I never go to church. It doesn't mean I never pray. These people outwardly are very pious. And they believe that God has control over their life. They want him on side. They use the language, the trappings of genuine Old Testament faith. And yet they're making it up. It's 100% fake, 100% DIY. But, moving on, what are the specific problems here? What's the writer showing us about the folly of this DIY religion and the ugliness of it? Three problems, three levels on which all this falls down. First of all, relationally. How are they treating God? The people in this passage, how are they treating God really badly, really offensively. They have no respect. They act like he's not a real person who, have, who would have views, who has said anything, certainly not anything worth listening to. Ugh, whatever I reckon, I'm sure that will be fine. He had given his commandments about how to approach him, how to occupy the land, where to go. Utterly ignored all of it. 
instead of listening to him, they put words in his mouth. They are making it up. And we hate it when people treat us that way, don't we? When someone puts words in your mouth or when someone just makes choices and assumes that you'll be fine with it. Think about the way a really bad boyfriend buys Christmas presents for his girlfriend. He doesn't ask what she would like, doesn't listen when she speaks to him. Instead, he just buys a load of DVDs that he would quite like to watch and gives them to her and expects her to be thrilled. That guy's getting dumped. Why? Because he has no respect. He doesn't value his girlfriend as a person. He doesn't think of her as someone who would have a view, someone whose views would be worth taking seriously, treating her like an object. And that's how the Israelites are treating God. Oh, yeah, ephods, Levites, God loves all that stuff, doesn't he? Now, some of the stuff that happens here is obviously reprehensible. The massacre at the end, that's not good. But what we mustn't miss is maybe some of the things in here that we struggle to get worked up about, like having an illegal Levite or not quite doing the tabernacle stuff in the right way. But don't think of it like that. Think about that question. How are these people treating God? They're treating him like they don't give that for anything he might have said. They are refusing him his right as a person to reveal and to um, define himself. Ugh, it's fine. Whatever I reckon, I'm sure God will go along with that. That's DIY religion. And it's utterly unrelational. And it's still alive and well. Think um, Think about the person who says, Oh, I like to think of God as being like this. And when we die, I'm sure he'll judge us according to this kind of standards. He'll accept this kind of person and maybe reject that kind of person. And that's what I think. That seems fair to me. I'm I'm sure that's how God will do it. It's normal in our culture to put words in God's mouth. To act as though he had never said anything himself or nothing worth listening to anyway. As though he will fit in with my ideas and agree with whatever I reckon. We are quick to speak. We are slow to listen. And this also happens inside the church when we put words in God's mouth instead of listening to the Bible. We make it up for ourselves. If any of you have been for the last few years um, off to the General Assembly, it's pure DIY religion. People who are making it up who are doing what is right in their own eyes, acting as though God had never said a word. I'm sure he'll be fine with whatever we agree. But then, of course, it's easy to see when other people are indulging in DIY religion. What about us? That's the real challenge, isn't it? How can we be self-aware? Is this how we treat God? Well, speaking personally, I think sometimes it is. When we come to the Bible with a sense that basically we already know what it says. We're not really listening because I've read this bit before and I know. When we don't really think about issues like speech or money or gluttony or pride, 
because we'll just do what's normal and fit in with what other people do and those sorts of standards, and I'm, I'm sure God will be fine with that. And the Bible says some challenging things, but, you know, let's be reasonable. I'm sure he'll be fine with if I live a kind of normalish life. That'll be fine. Or when we want God to prosper us and guide us at um, a job interview or when we're moving house, and we convince ourselves that what we want, well, surely... Surely that'll, that'll fit in well enough with what God says, even though we haven't really thought that through or tried to read, read the Bible and see what he says. Just assume, oh, I'm sure that thing that I really want, I'm sure God will be fine with that. With um, all of these things, the issue is not so much the harm that we cause. Some of us don't cause that much harm in our lives. The issue is how are we treating God? as though he had nothing to say or nothing important, as though he wasn't really an independent person. It's totally unrelational. So DRI religion fails on that level, but also intellectually. That's the second problem. Imagine you could talk to Micah. Imagine you could talk to him and try and talk some sense into him. You'd say, Micah, why have you built a shrine and hired a Levite? Oh, because then... He says, God will favor my family. He'll bless me. Okay, but what makes you think that God will bless you because you've built these things? What makes you think that he'll be pleased with what you've done? And Micah says, oh, yeah, he he loves all that. He loves that sort of thing. You say, really? Are you sure? How do you know God loves all that? Well, it says so in the Bible. Hmm. Which bit of the Bible do you particularly have in mind? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert, but I'm, I'm sure it's all in there somewhere. Hmm, interesting. I wonder what you would make of Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, which explicitly forbids images and unlicensed priests and pretty much everything else you've done. Oh. And what could Micah say? What he's done, the way that he behaves is wrong, is mistreating God. But what the writer tries to bring out in the way that he writes it is it's just silly. It's silly. There's something absurd about making up your own truth in religion because it's not true. It's not true. You can't just make stuff up and that that doesn't make it true. Why would you rely on something that you yourself had just made up? Something that wasn't based on anything more than your own opinion. Because if you want a God who will bless you, then you better be the real God. And if you want to approach the real God, then you better do it on his terms, which means listening. The problem with DIY religion isn't just that it's wrong, it's silly. Now, practically, I think this is really important, especially when we think about how we speak to other people. And... My observation would be that often Christians feel intellectually insecure. It's easy to feel like everyone else around us has a really thought-through view of the world, whereas it's us who are on the back foot. It's us who've got something to, something to prove. But really often it's, it's not that way around. Um, imagine you've been to church at Christmas with some relatives, and afterwards your aunt is saying, in the end, everyone will go to heaven. And you say, well, that's interesting. 
How do you know that? Do you have some experience of the afterlife? Is that something you've researched? And your aunt says, no. And there's a bit of a conversation. But what it, boil, what it boils down to is, is your aunt says, no, I, I, just, I just reckon. Which is not a brilliant argument. Whereas the Christian can say, well, I look at the eyewitness evidence of the life of Jesus. I'm persuaded that he's the son of God. I'm persuaded from solid historical evidence that he rose from the dead. Which puts him in a unique position to know about that sort of thing. And therefore, I think there's pretty good reasons for listening to him. Now, I'm not saying that's the kind of argument that compels agreement, but it's pretty solid. Certainly better than, I just reckon. It's a powerful thing when we invite somebody to think. Because DIY religion, which is very widespread, it's not built on anything. If only we could get people to think. Now, it's not true that all thinking people end up believing what Christians believe. It doesn't work like that. But it is true that many religious views are based on nothing more than opinion. People act like Micah, just making it up, assuming that, well, this feels feels right, so it must be true. And if we can ask people questions that help to show the lack of a basis and who knows where that will end. But again, this isn't just a problem for other people. This is a challenge for us as Christians to think. Because many of us will have views or opinions, things we do, which we've never really scrutinized. We've never subjected to that one crucial question, what does the Bible say? What does God say about this? For example, Christians should or Christians should not participate in Halloween. We should have communion every week, every month, every quarter, every year. When we face big choices in life, the Lord will make it clear which way he wants us to go. Or he'll sometimes do that. Or he'll almost never do that. What do you think about questions like that? What do you think and what reasons would you give? The passage holds up Micah and the others here as people of instincts, people of unchallenged assumptions. And the message is, do not be like them. Read God's word, which is really clear, and think. There's an intellectual problem with DIY religion, and there's also a moral problem. It's very obvious. You don't need me to explain that, that when the people are making up the rules for themselves, it doesn't end well. They do what is evil. They rob. They steal. Instead of the external truth of God's word constraining them into a life of goodness, their DIY religion does nothing to restrain the evil that is in their hearts. And things become very ugly very quickly. And it gets worse next week. So DIY religion, it treats God badly. It fails relationally, intellectually. It's silly. And it does nothing to restrain the evil that is in our hearts. And therefore... The writer set up this massive problem, this awful situation, awful chapters. Therefore, therefore what? What's the solution? Well, remember the writer's refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We need 
a king to save us from DIY religion. That's the solution. Now, I think that's a surprise. Because if the problem is religious in nature, surely we need some sort of religious solution. We need a prophet or a priest. If, if it's about not making it up, but listening to God. But in the Bible terms... A king is not just a civil ruler. A king is someone who will lead the people into godliness, somebody who knows the law of God and who will help his people to stick to it. Please could you flick back to Deuteronomy 18. It's on page 161. Actually, it's... um, It is that page, but it's chapter 17. This is where, way ahead of time, God had said what sort of king Israel was to have. Have a look at that paragraph there, the second one, from verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in the book a copy of this law, as in the law of Moses, God's word, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, And he shall read it in all the days of his life. That's what it means to be a king. Someone who knows God's word and loves it. Who will lead his people into sticking with that word. In time, as the Bible story goes on, that's what Israel found in David. The man who wrote Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Briefly, Israel had a king like that who loved God's law and led them into keeping it. And we have someone even better. Great David's greatest son, Jesus. He's the king who keeps us from DIY religion by teaching us the truth and by holding us to it. Really practically, I think this refrain that surprise here that it's a king we need to keep us on the straight and narrow what it means is this we need to give our bible reading or our bible listening a royal edge let me explain what i mean by that only a king can save us from diy religion because our method is not to make it up for ourselves but to listen to him and really listen because he's the king He's not a buddy or an advisor. He's the king. And we hear from King Jesus in the Bible. And it's not advice. It's commands. And it's not opinion. It's the truth. And when the king speaks, you sit up and listen. And if we keep that sense of hearing the Bible as an authoritative voice from the king, from the throne then we will take it seriously and we will stick to what is written and we will look closely at the words and not assume that we know what it says. We will approach it rightly and therefore approach God rightly. Maybe as you uh, try to pick up your Bible this week, it's a good way of thinking about it. What does the king have to say to me just now? See if that helps you to concentrate. I know that I need that. What does the king have to say to me? What are the royal words this morning that I can't take lightly 
As we finish and pray, I'm going to read some words from much later on in the Bible from Isaiah, which I think express where this passage is meant to lead us. It's the polar opposite of DIY religion. These are words that express the way that a person would live, feel, when they really have a sense that we are under the king. And it's his words that we hear. So let me read, and then we'll pray. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Lord, we've seen these chapters, people who sat very light to what you had said. Lord, please help us to learn from these mistakes and truly to live our lives under the reign of Jesus, that we would view the scriptures as a royal word and therefore tremble at them. Lord, we pray that you would do that in us. For your name's sake. And so that his ways might flourish in our lives. Amen.